turn to the book of Acts, the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. <clears throat> the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Amen. We can't do anything without Him. I love to preach through the book of Acts. I'm thankful the Lord has put it in our hearts to uh, go through the book of Acts with you once again. I always learn new things every time I study it. And everything that we're teaching you here today is not everything we've taught you before because there's just so much. Amen. We have another series called the Passion Series in the book of Acts. If you'd like to get some more understanding from the book of Acts, you can get that series and it's not totally exactly the same. But anyway, Acts chapter 6, if you have that, say praise the Lord. Lord. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask the blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. We thank you for your spirit that is in us. We thank you for your awesome word that will go forth today. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. We're going to go through the 6th and 7th chapter this morning. First few verses of the 8th chapter. So I just wanted to read a couple of verses to you to get going here. But look at verse 1. The Bible says, In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. We've already seen how the devil has tried to destroy the early church through the religious authorities of the day. We have seen how the devil tried to destroy the church through hypocrisy that was in the church through Ananias and Sapphira. Now we see the devil trying another tactic to destroy the church, and that is the tactic of the widows in the church begin to squabble. They begin to fuss and fight over who's getting what. And you know, the Bible tells us here that the Grecians were murmuring, the Bible says, against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. So we got a little squabble going on here in the house of the Lord. Now, when I look at the book of Acts, I'm sort of encouraged by the fact that that the book of Acts, the church was not totally perfect. I mean, that's not a good thing. But I'm kind of encouraged by the fact that it wasn't totally perfect because we deal with so many different things and struggles and battles and difficulties within the church uh, here. Amen. So I'm quite encouraged that the early church was not totally perfect, that they had their troubles. And this is an example of the trouble that was going on. So let me explain to you what's happening here. If you look at verse 1 again, the Bible tells us while the disciples are multiplying, so the church is growing, but there is a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews. The murmuring here, that's not a good thing. Because the Bible talks about murmuring is as the sin of idolatry. So it's a very, very serious thing. It's the word that was used whenever Israel wandered in the wilderness, how they murmured against the Lord. So we have now a murmuring like in the Old Testament days when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. We now have a murmuring in the church which Hebrews, or Corinthians I should say, tells us is as idolatry. So it was a very, very serious thing that was going on here. 
And what's happening, if you look at it, the Bible says the Grecians are murmuring against the Hebrews. Now, these Grecians are not Greeks. They're not Gentiles. These Grecians are Hellenist. That's the word behind the word Greeks. They are the Hellenists. Say the Hellenist. That means they are Greek-ized Jews. Does that make sense? They are Grecian Jews. That means they are Jews who speak the Greek language. They are the Jews of the dispersion. And so out there in the world, they've learned to speak Greek language. They've learned to speak uh, or work in the Greek culture. So when it says the Greeks and the Hebrews here, we're not talking about Gentiles versus Hebrews. We're talking about Greek-speaking Jews versus Hebrews the Jerusalem Jews. Okay? So the Jerusalem Jews are the Hebrews in the church and the Greek-speaking Jews, the Grecians that are in the church from the dispersion are in a dispute. That's what's happening here. Now, if you were a Jerusalem Jew, you were resident in Jerusalem, then you would have been able to speak Aramaic and Hebrew. Okay? The worship in the temple was done in Hebrew. So the Jerusalem Jews would go up to the temple, they would worship in the temple, and they would understand what was going on in the temple because they could speak Hebrew and Aramaic. Possibly Greek as well, just a little bit. But the Greek-speaking Jews of the dispersion, those that lived outside of Jerusalem, if they did know Hebrew, they knew it very little. So when they came to Jerusalem, these Greek-speaking Jews, there was a prejudice the Jerusalem Jews looked at these Greek-speaking Jews and they looked down on them. They were not as sophisticated as the Jerusalem Jew. So now we've got the Jerusalem Jews in the church and we've got the Greek-speaking Jews in the church from the dispersion. And the Bible tells us there begins to be a conflict in that church. And that conflict had to do with the fact that the Greek-speaking Jews thought that their widows were being neglected. So when the distribution came about where the widows of uh, the Palestinian Jews or the Jerusalem Jews, they received their portion. Maybe the guy that was in charge of distributing that gave the Jerusalem widow a little more than he gave the Greek-speaking widow. Okay? So there was a, a real conflict that was going on here, a prejudice that was going on here between the Jerusalem Jew and the Grecian Jews. And so what this was, was a plot from the devil to try to distract the apostles from preaching the Word of God. He wanted to get them distracted on in dealing with this or setting up committees and, and trying to work all of these issues out that were in the church so that they wouldn't focus on preaching the Word of God. This was the tactic of the enemy. But the apostles were very wise as to what was going on in this murmuring and this complaining and this squabble between these widows in the church. They knew exactly what it was about. And so instead of getting caught up in the fuss, instead of getting caught up in this squabble, the apostles said this in verse 2, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, it is not reason that we should leave the Word of God and serve tables. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they thought it was beneath them or they were beneath this.
to serve in that manner. But they knew that their primary call was to preach the word of the living God, not to distribute bread to the widows. So instead of getting distracted by this squabble and getting taken away from their primary purpose to declare the word of God, they told the Greek-speaking Jews in the church, choose you out from among you men. Some men that can serve or wait on the tables and we will give ourselves continually to the Word of God in prayer. We won't be distracted by waiting on tables. We'll be able to continually focus on the Word of God and continually be able to focus on, on prayer here. So you pick out from among you Greek-speaking Jews. People that will help with the distribution or the ministration or the serving of the tables for the widows. Alright? So this is the plan, right? So the Bible says, verse 3 again, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Number one, they have to be honest. And they have to have an honest report. Uh, the Bible talks about deacons. They have to be have a good report within and without. Not just in the church, but on the outside of the church. They have to have a good report. So the Bible says, okay, look at it. Here's the qualifications for these men to be able to uh, serve in the church. The Bible says, good report, number one, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. So they have to have a good report, they have to be full of the Holy Ghost, and they have to have what? Wisdom. They have to have, let me put it to you this way, sanctified common sense. <laughs> I mean, it's not just wisdom that comes you know, from them, their own being, but it's a wisdom that comes from God. But of course, they have to have wisdom. They have to have some sanctified common sense about them. They need to know what to do and how to do it. Make it work out. I mean, you've got these disputes going on. You've got this squabbling going on. And so you need somebody that is of good report, that's full of the Holy Ghost. Say, full of the Holy Ghost. And wisdom. So they know how to work these things out and how to administrate and how to bring something to a proper means or a proper end to a proper conclusion. Say praise the Lord. And then they go on and say also, <clears throat> praise the Lord, not only wisdom, but he said, we will, uh, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually prayer and to the ministry of the word. Hallelujah. Now the words here, look at this, it says we appoint them over this business or this ministration. Even though they're not called deacons, the noun deacon is not used in the passage, but in the text, the ministration or the serving here is uh, has a root in the word deacon. Does that make sense? I know I'm losing you, but anyway, here we go. Alright, say Amen. Okay, so praise the Lord. So these are going to be deacons in the church, even though the word deacon is not used here. They're going to be the ones who are going to serve the tables. If you'll look at verse 2, it says this, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The word served there is coming from a word, a verb, that you would get the noun deacon from. Okay? So these are basically the first seven deacons in the church. And what a deacon does in the church he serves. He's a table waiter in a sense. 
He's involved in administration. He's serving the Lord. Elders rule. Deacons serve. Deacons do not rule. They serve. Elders rule. They have a position of authority and rulership. So, we have these seven deacons here that are going to be involved in serving tables. Uh, they are table waiters. They are involved in the ministration of the bread. So look at verse 4. The apostle said, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they're not going to be distracted by this little murmur and this little squabble about, you know, the distribution of of the bread, etc. They're going to focus on preaching the Word of God and praying. Amen. Thank God. So thank God for deacons. Thank God for men and women because there are deaconesses uh, that serve the Lord in the church. Amen. Now, these men are going to be literally formally appointed in this role or position as deacon. They are going to be, first of all, chosen by the assembly uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, and then they're going to be brought out and the apostles are going to lay their hands on them and they're going to formally declare that they are deacons in the church so that the apostles can continue to preach the Word of God and to pray. Doesn't mean the deacons are not going to preach because two of them, Stephen and Philip, are going to preach the Word of God as well. In fact, we never see them waiting tables, but we do see them preaching the Word of God but they were chosen to be deacons in the church. Say amen. amen. So they are not apostles. I want you to get that. They are not apostles. But they are full of the Holy Ghost. And they are full of faith. Good report. Other translations, full of faith. they got to be full of faith. they got to have a good reputation. They gotta be faithful people. They gotta be loyal. They gotta be committed. These, so these men are full of faith. They're faithful. They're loyal. You can depend on them. They're full of faith. They're full of, uh, the Holy Ghost. And the Bible says they are full of wisdom. They got sanctified common sense. So anyway, verse five. And I would encourage you, by the way, to read these chapters in the book of Acts so that when I'm teaching you, you know what we are. Okay, what we're dealing with. I mean, if you haven't read it, you don't have a clue about what I'm doing here. Okay, verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen. Say Stephen. Comes from the Greek word Stephanos, means crown. You're going to choose Stephen to be one of them. The Bible says, a man full of what? Faith. He's full of faith. He meets the qualification of good reports. He is faithful. He's loyal. He is... The Hebrew word is he met. He's trustworthy. You can put your confidence in this man. You know he's trustworthy. You know that he's going to be loyal. You know you can uh, be assured that he's not going to do crazy stuff on you. That's what the word means. He was full of faith. The Bible says he's also full of the Holy Ghost. See, they didn't just pick somebody out in the world that was good in business. See, there's a lot of churches that'll find somebody that's a good businessman and he's got a good business out there and so what they'll do is they'll take that man because he's a good businessman and they'll make him a deacon. You don't do that. The Bible says, choose from, a, from among you, the church. They have to be full of the Holy Ghost. This man is full of faith and he's full of the Holy Ghost. He's from within the church. He doesn't just have your natural abilities that he's out there in the world working a big business. Forget that. 
That's not the qualification to be a deacon in the house of God. So they choose Stephen. He's one of them. He's full of faith and the Holy Ghost. And then it tells us also Philip. Now these first two, you will recognize them more readily through the book of Acts. We'll see Philip again and also Stephen. Okay, so we've got Stephen, we've got Philip, we've got uh, Prochorus, we've got Nicanor, we've got Timon, we've got Parmenas, and we've got Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Now, I believe all these seven men were Jewish believers, every one of them. They are the Jewish believers of the dispersion. They are Greek-speaking Jews. They're the Hellenistic Jew in contrast to the Hebrew-speaking Jews or the Jerusalem Jews. So pretty good wisdom working here. you got a problem with the Greek-speaking widows and uh, with their daily ministration, then pick out some Greek-speaking Jews here to oversee to make sure they're taken care of uh, so we can get rid of this murmuring and complaining. Okay? The Bible says in verse 6, "...whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them." So they were able to find seven men pretty easily that met the qualifications to be the deacons in the church. Good report, full of the Holy Ghost, amen. A wisdom, uh, Stephen's got power, he's got, he's full of the Holy Ghost, he's full of faith, etc. And so they bring them before the apostles, the apostles lay their hands on them and officially appoint them to become uh, the deacons in the church. So it's an official, it's a public thing that's done here. Nobody's guessing about who it is. It's officially and publicly done before the church. Say amen. amen. All right, the Bible goes on, verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, or the freedmen, and the Cyrenians and Alexandrians of them of Cilician and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. So somehow Stephen, this deacon in the church, full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost and power, somehow Stephen finds himself in a debate. The Bible says they're disputing. That means they're debating. And Stephen, being a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, finds himself in the synagogue which dealt with the uh, Greek-speaking Jews of that age. Are you all with me? men of the dispersion. He finds himself in this synagogue in Jerusalem. Now, the synagogue goes back to the days of Babylon uh, during their captivity when they were away from the temple. They weren't offering sacrifices. They didn't have a temple. It had been destroyed. It goes back to that time, the synagogue, after the captivity was set up. Jews dispersed throughout all the world would worship God and uh, meet there and hear the word of God in the synagogues. But the synagogue was under the authority of the Sanhedrin court. So if the Sanhedrin court rejects Jesus Christ, that means all the synagogues have rejected Him. Because even though they're out there in different parts of the world, these Greek-speaking Jews dispersed all over the world, they're still under the authority of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So whatever decision the Sanhedrin court makes, that 71 leaders there, concerning any issue, the synagogues throughout the world have to abide by that. There happens to be a synagogue in Jerusalem so that the dispersed Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, can go into that synagogue and worship. The Bible tells us who they're from. They are freedmen. 
the libertines, the freedmen, were slaves of the Roman Empire who had been freed but were converted to Christianity. So the Bible then tells us not only do we have the libertines, but we have the Cyrenians and also Alexandrians of them of Cilicia and of Asia. Now Saul of Tarsus would have been from Cilicia. So Saul of Tarsus was a Hellenistic Jew. Saul of Tarsus could speak Hebrew, he could speak Aramaic, but he could also speak Greek because he is Saul of Tarsus of Cilicia. So Saul, Saul of Tarsus would have been there in this synagogue that day. And all of a sudden, the debate breaks out. Stephen is there, and there's a debate that's going on, and the Apostle Paul stands up. And the Apostle Paul is one of the most brilliant intellectual minds of his day. He is set at the feet of Gamaliel. Later on the book of Acts will tell you that. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a doctor of the law. He was extremely brilliant, very intelligent, and the debate kicks off. And what is this debate all about? What are they debating about? What is this Greek-speaking Jew named Stephen debating there in this synagogue of Greek-speaking Jews who have not yet been converted to Jesus? Stephen is a believer, but these Libertines, these Cyrenians, those of Cilicia, these Alexandrian Jews of the dispersion, they're not believers in the church. So you've got one Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew, that has been converted to Christianity in a debate with the rest of these Greek-speaking Jews who are not yet converted in this synagogue that's located in Jerusalem. And the debate kicks off. And Stephen begins to debate. And the Apostle Paul, because he was among this group, would begin to debate him as well. Now what you need to realize that this debate is major, is extremely important. The Apostle Paul has to win this debate. It's not a matter of who wins or who loses. Paul has to win. Because if he doesn't win this debate, and I'll explain it to you as we go through it, there will be no more sacrifice for Yahweh. Close the temple doors down. No more need for a priesthood. No more need for a sacrifice. The old way of doing things and that mosaic economy, that way of worshiping God that God established in the old covenant, if Stephen wins, that's all over. If the apostle Paul wins, it continues. So if Paul doesn't win, the sacrifice for Yahweh is over. And the Aaronic priesthood is done with. Are y'all with me right now? That old traditional way, that old Judaism, it's over with. Go to Galatians 1. Let's see where Paul's coming from. <clears throat> now what we're about to preach to you this morning was before Paul's conversion. But after Paul's conversion to the faith of Jesus Christ, he tells us when he writes Galatians 1, <clears throat> verse 13, he said, For you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it, and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals, 
in my own nation, being more exceeding zealous of the tradition of my fathers. He said there was a time here in Galatia. He said there was a time that I was a part of that Jewish religion. He said I was more zealous for it than really than even my fathers were. But something happened to him that took him out of Judaism and brought him into Christianity. So what you have here is not Old Testament versus New Testament in this debate. Because both Paul and Stephen both believe in that Old Testament. They both believe that from Genesis to Malachi that that Old Testament is the Word of God. So you need to get this today that it's, when this debate breaks out, it's not a debate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about interpreting the Old Testament. It's about saying that what was once the worship of God has now come to an end. That that temple and that sacrifice is over with. That ironic priesthood, it's over with. That's what it was about. It wasn't about Old Testament versus New Testament. It was about interpreting the Old Testament and letting everybody know you don't have to bring a sacrifice anymore. The blood of Jesus is enough and Jesus is the foundation of a brand new temple. And that temple is the believers. It's not that one that's standing over there where the sacrifices are being made. So it's not Old Testament versus New Testament. It's about interpretation of the Old Testament and knowing that that old mosaic economy ritualistic worship is over with. That's what we're dealing with here. You get the point. So the Apostle Paul has to win this battle. If he does not win this battle, there's not going to be any more ironic priesthood. There will be no more sacrifices. And what about the temple? Didn't God say build the temple? Yeah. But something's changed here. Because Jesus said in John chapter 2, He said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And the Jews thought He was talking about that temple of Herod that was 46 years in the building. But the Bible says in John chapter 2, He wasn't talking about that physical temple. He was talking about His body. Destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. What He's saying is, I am the new temple of God. And in three days, when you destroy it, you kill this body, this temple, the true temple of the living God, where God is now. In three days, I'll raise it up. I'll be raised from the dead. And not only that, but I'm going to raise up a new temple of believers. So Paul's still caught up in the worship of the type and shadow. Paul's still caught up in that old ceremonial ritualistic law type approach to God with that natural physical temple which was only a type of that which was to come. He still believes in those sacrifices still need to be uh, offered to the Lord. He doesn't believe that Jesus is the sacrifice. He doesn't believe in the blood that was shed for his sins. He's looking to those types and those sacrifices to be the way God removes His sin. He's looking to that old temple instead of the new temple, Jesus Christ. He's not a believer in Jesus Christ. And so this is what it's about here. It's not Old Testament versus New Testament. It's about interpreting the Old Testament correctly. Say hallelujah to the Lamb. So if Paul is right, those sacrifices will continue. If Paul is right, we keep worshiping under the Mosaic economy. If Paul is right, are y'all with me today? Yahweh still has his, God still has his sacrifice. 
But if Stephen is right, no more sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled those sacrifices. If Stephen is right, the blood of Jesus is what removes your sin. If Stephen is right, there's no more need for a, an Aaronic priesthood. If Stephen is right, close the doors of the temple. Turn the altar of sacrifice into a barbecue pit. I'm not being irreverent. I'm just being truthful with you today. Because that is no longer needed. Because that is a type and it's a shadow that God ordained in the Old Testament. But what these Jews are failing to see is that that's all over with. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. He is the true temple. That's why He said, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise it up. He was talking about His body, the true temple of God. And He was talking about the church of the living God, which is the true temple. No, you're not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So thou God, where is God? God's not dwelling in a building. God is dwelling in the hearts of human beings. So that's what the debate is all about. Does this mosaic economy continue? Or is it finished? Is it over with? Is God over there in that temple? If He's not in that temple, then where is God? We need to find God if He's not there. Where is He if He's not in that temple? Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. So the debate goes on. and I mean, it's heavy. It's going back and forth, right? Say amen. Notice what the Scripture says during this time of disputing and debating. The Bible says in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. You see, because as a Hellenistic Jew, one who would have been living out there in the, you know, the rest of the nations of the world, he had a different perspective on the temple. The Jerusalem Jew would tell you that God was in that temple. But the Hellenistic Jew would say, well, God is everywhere. And God is not just for the Jew in Jerusalem locally, but He's the God for the whole world and all the nations of the world. So whenever the church is established, Jesus Christ sets up His church. These uh, Greek-speaking Jews from all over the world, they've got a little bit better perspective on that temple. They're not against the temple, but they have a different perspective on that temple than maybe that Jerusalem Jew had. Amen. Say amen. amen. So watch what happens in this time. The Bible says they could not resist the wisdom, the spirit by which he spake. They did not realize when they saw Stephen, the caliber of that man. But he wasn't coming to them with his own wisdom. He wasn't coming to them with his own power. The caliber of the man that they were up against that they did not recognize was a man that was filled with the Holy Ghost. The Apostle Paul didn't have the Holy Ghost. So when Paul and these other synagogue people there begin to debate with Stephen, you know, you know, they're all against him, right? Paul and everybody else that's there. Uh, they're standing up to debate him. When they stand up to debate him, even though Paul is brilliant and intellectual and said to the feet of Gamaliel, Paul does not have the Holy Ghost at this point. He doesn't have a revelation of the truth. He doesn't have a revelation that that old covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he's wrong. And when Stephen stands up full, the Bible says he's already told us he was full of faith. He's full of the Holy Ghost. He starts standing up. How are you going to 
debate a Holy Ghost man. If you're not a Holy Ghost filled person, how in the world are you going to debate a Holy Ghost man? Somebody that's got the Spirit of the living God in them concerning doctrine. The, the debate, the debate takes off. And Stephen is full of the Holy Ghost. Spirit of the living God is inside of him. And I'm telling you, the Apostle Paul has got to win this battle. If he doesn't win this battle, everything he knows about what he's doing as far as worshiping God is going to come to an end. And he's going to have to admit that he has to become a believer in Jesus Christ. So they didn't realize the caliber of man that they were up against in Stephen. But we know the Bible has already told us he's full of the Holy Ghost. He's full of faith. Amen. He's of good report. The Bible says they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they subverted men which said, that means they, they bribed some men. They paid them off. False witnesses just like <clears throat> was used against Jesus Christ. Bought some false witnesses off. And what did they say? The Bible says in verse 11, Then they subverted men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. False witnesses. He said, We've heard him blaspheme God. We've heard him, he's, you know, speaking against the temple. If you speak against the temple, you're speaking against God himself. You with me today? We've heard him blaspheme. Look at this. Use blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Did Stephen speak against Moses? Of course not. Did Stephen blaspheme God? Of course not. He's telling them the proper way to interpret the Old Testament. He's got more understanding than even Peter does. He's got more understanding than all the apostles put together at this time in history. And he's not even an apostle. Well, I thought you said only the apostles get the Holy Ghost. Stephen is not an apostle, but he's filled with the Holy Ghost in power. And there's signs and wonders and miracles breaking out all around this man. And he's not an apostle, but he's working miracles. He's filled with the Holy Ghost. And miracles are taking place in his life. But he's not an apostle. So there goes that doctrine. That only apostles got the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. Well, we already know that's not true. So here he goes. And you got these false witnesses, you know, speaking against him, lying, twisting what he's saying. It's twisting him, twisting his words. He's not speaking against Moses and he's not speaking in against God. He's not blaspheming either one of them. Say praise the Lord. The Bible says, okay, y'all with me right now? You see, up to this point, the Sadducees and the Sadhedron court, they had a club that they were trying to destroy the church with. And that club was, we don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the apostles, whenever that lame man got healed, whooped the Sanhedrin court. And let the Sanhedrin court, Jesus is alive, that's why he's standing here whole. So they can't use that club that the resurrection is not a reality because we got the proof, right? So now there's a new approach. They got a new club. And this club is these people are going to try to destroy the temple. 
They're speaking against the law of Moses and they're speaking against God Himself. Say amen. Watch this. They're saying the temple is going to be destroyed. We got him now. We got the club we've been looking for. This is the thing that we can use against him now. They think the temple is going to be destroyed and oh, possibly they're going to be behind this destruction. So there's a different different tool now the enemy is going to try to use. And the Apostle Paul is not a Sadducee. Paul is a Pharisee. So now we have Pharisees hanging around that are involved in the persecution. And so the Bible says... They set up false witnesses in verse 13 which said, This man seeth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place. When he speaks against this holy place, this temple, then he's speaking against God Himself. How dare Him speak against this holy place, this temple? Are y'all here today? He's speaking blasphemous words against the law of God. No, He wasn't. He wasn't speaking against that temple. He wasn't speaking against the law of God. He was just telling you, it's coming to an end. It's come to an end. In Jesus Christ. Jesus is the foundation of this temple. His blood is enough. Say hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want you to see what they accused Him of. He's speaking words against this holy place, the temple, and also the law. Number two. For we have heard Him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place. We heard Him say it out of His mouth that this temple is going to be destroyed and it's going to be destroyed by Jesus. We heard those words come right out of His mouth. Well, Jesus had already said it. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus had already said there would not be one stone left upon another. It would all be thrown down. In Matthew 24, He already said it. He already said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. I'm the true temple of God, not this building. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up. And so are y'all with me? Jesus has already declared the temple would be destroyed. So Stephen is only preaching what he heard Jesus preach about that temple. He's not preaching against the temple. He's just telling him it's coming to an end. He's not preaching against the law. He's not preaching against Moses. He just let him know it's at a fulfillment time. Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. Say praise the Lord. Wow, it's beautiful, isn't it? Y'all awake? Okay, I'm just reading through here because I don't want to miss something very important. Verse 7 in chapter 6 says, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. You've got priests coming into the church. You've got priests that are no longer going to be a part of that ironic priesthood. They're no longer going to need to bring sacrifices. They recognize that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. They quit their job, turned in their keys. They're a part of the new temple. They're a part of a new worship. They're a part of a new covenant. Hallelujah. No need for them to go bring sacrifices anymore in the temple. They're in the church of the living God. They're a part of the temple. And their sacrifice is Jesus. And by His blood they know they are forgiven. So now the priests are coming into the church. Perfect timing. 
So the Bible says they're accusing him of blasphemy against uh, words against this holy place, the temple, the law. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And I'm not saying he didn't say that. He did say that. He did say that. He did say that Jesus would destroy the temple, but he didn't blaspheme against God and he didn't blaspheme against the law. Moses, say amen. He did say that that temple would be destroyed. He did say that Jesus would change the customs of Moses. What are they talking about? Change the custom of Moses. Well, you're talking about the customs of Moses. If you're talking about the customs that have to do with the law, that means there'll be no more Sabbath day. There'll be no Pentecostal feast. There'll be no Passover feast anymore. God will fulfill all of those festivals. Hallelujah to the Lamb. There'll be no need to bring any more sacrifices anymore. God will fulfill those. I've got Bible to say that much. But if he's talking about the customs of Moses, which has to do with the traditions, which they called the oral law, the oral law they claimed was given to Moses from God, but it wasn't. It was something they came up, extra rules they added to the law of God. Their traditions were added to the law of God, and that made the Word of God of none effect. So if that's the customs he's talking about here, we know Stephen, number one, because I don't know which ones he's talking about. The Bible doesn't tell me what customs he's talking about. It just says the customs of Moses. And you go to the original language, he said it really doesn't, doesn't clarify it for you. I looked at it. But I will tell you this, by truth, that that old ritualistic way of worship is finished. It's over with. It's done with. Hallelujah. We're in fulfillment days. The types and the shadows that pointed to this day are now fulfilled and complete in Jesus Christ. There's no need to continue that anymore. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And for sure I can tell you those traditions, they were never of God. So these men are using apostolic hermeneutics. They're using the same hermeneutics that Jesus used when He preached. Hermeneutics means interpretation. What kind of hermeneutics are you going to use when you come to the Word of God? How are you going to interpret the Word of God? You're going to interpret it by Jesus and the apostles' method of interpretation. It's called apostolic hermeneutics. You want to know how to interpret the Old Testament Get in the New Testament and find out how the apostles interpreted it. Amen. Say praise the, Lord. praise the Lord. We're not going to apply Jewish hermeneutics. We're going to apply apostolic hermeneutics. Amen. That's the method that they used. Amen. And by the way, that's what we're learning in our, our theology class on Monday night. Man, I'm having a great time. Oh, I'm loving it. I'm loving every minute of it. Praise the Lord. I didn't know if I would. I didn't know if I would, but I am. I'm loving every minute of it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So anyway, apostolic hermeneutics. Verse 14, we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. That's what they said they heard him say. All right, all right. So I don't disagree that he said that. But where I disagree is they've twisted what he said on him and said he's blaspheming God by speaking against that temple, and he's blaspheming the law of God by saying that Jesus is going to change the customs of Moses. That wasn't a blasphemy of God or a blasphemy of the law. That was simply telling them 
it's fulfilled. Say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So what are they doing? They're twisting what he's saying. They're twisting what he's saying. I'm not, I'm not rejecting the fact that what they said he said that he said. I'm not rejecting that. What I'm telling you is that the way they came to a conclusion about what he said was wrong. Because he was not against that temple. He was not against the law of Moses. He was not against the word of God. The, the Bible, the law is holy. The law is beautiful. The law is wonderful. But it has its place. Say amen. 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 I feel the Holy Ghost this morning. I thank God for the truth. If I'm not preaching you the truth right now, bring your goat to church and let's kill it. Are you with me right now? I'm telling you the truth right now. I'm looking at the temple of the living God. I'm li His blood is enough. He is the foundation of this temple. God is not some kind of idol that you can put in a building and say God dwells there. He never was that kind of God. Never. Never. Even in the Old Testament. And Steve is not blaspheming God, speaking against that house. He's letting him know even what the Old Testament said. The Old Testament never said God lived in that house. How can you put God in a little house? How can you confine God to the building? You think you can take this God and make an idol out of Him and put Him in a temple like an idol, you know, the heathens would do? Putting Him in a building? You think you can confine God that way and contain God that way? So He's not against the temple and He's not against the law. He's just telling you you've missed what the law said to you. You are the ones who have misinterpreted the law. Hallelujah! I feel good this morning. I feel good this morning. And the priests are coming into the church. The priests are believing in Jesus' name. The priests are getting baptized, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues. The priests are turning in their keys. They don't have a job anymore. The veil of the temple has been ripped from top to bottom. Giving all people who believe in Jesus Christ access into the presence of God themselves. They don't have to go through that ironic prayer. Oh, hallelujah. The veil of the temple has been rent in tune. These are great days. Oh, the priests are enjoying this. Hallelujah. Oh, you don't have to cut the throats of animals anymore. You don't have to smell the stench coming out of those animals. Come on, somebody. You don't have to deal with the puritans thereof. You don't have to deal with all of those organs and all of that. Yeah. Thank God for Jesus Christ fulfilling all of that type and shadow. He is enough. His blood is enough. And these Hellenistic Jews have a perspective on this that that Jerusalem Jew really doesn't have a perspective on. Say amen. Oh, so the priests are coming in. It's a great opportunity for them. The Bible tells us, look at verse 15. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. They drug him from that synagogue of the Labertines, that synagogue that had Silesians there, Alexandrians there, and, and others that were there. He, they drug him straight to the council. 
took him straight to the Sanhedrin court. We got a man here that we believe is bringing false doctrine. We got a man who we believe is a false prophet. We got a man here that we believe is speaking against God and against the temple of the living God. We got a man that we believe needs to be stoned to death, according to Deuteronomy 13. We got a man that we believe is blaspheming the name of God Almighty. And if you blaspheme the name of God Almighty, they take you out and stone you. You for him to speak against that temple, they said, he's blaspheming against God. He's not speaking against the temple, but the way they said it. We believe he's worthy of death. Deuteronomy 13, he's a false prophet. Say amen. amen. So the debate's going on. <clears throat> Say amen. amen. Between Paul and Stephen. And Stephen, when they drag him out of that synagogue that day, Brother Timothy, Stephen won. Paul is whipped. He's never lost a debate in his life. But this Holy Ghost, Spirit-filled man of God, full of faith and power, signs miracles. He's not even an apostle. He's a deacon. God's going to use a deacon to whip him again. The sacrifice of Yahweh is finished. The temple is going to be destroyed. There's no need for it anymore. Stephen walked out and declared, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. Amen. Amen. Stephen won. I'm glad he won that day. I'm glad he won that day. Stephen won. Paul lost. You understand what was at stake? Paul had to win. If he doesn't win, that means he's going to have to become a believer himself. You understand what's at stake? What is at stake here in this debate? So they drag him out of that synagogue. They take him, put him before the council. We've seen this council before, but Peter and John stood before them with that man that had been healed by the name of Jesus. So these people accusing him, let's look at it again, accusing him that the temple would be destroyed, that the cousin which Moses delivered would be changed, and that, say amen. amen. Praise God. Uh, we, okay. This, this man seeth not to speak blasphemy against this holy place and the law. We've heard this man say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, shall change the custom Moses delivered us. Alright, so that's the accusation, right? And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. You know what's happening right there? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the law, the Bible says his face shone. You understand what I'm telling you? And Corinthians chapter 3 tells you that that old glory that was on the face of Moses is passing away. But this new glory in the church is a continual unending glory that won't pass away. And so what God is showing you by this man is the power, the miracles, the signs and wonders that were done in his ministry, the witness that he had, the victory in the debate, and now the glow on his face. God is saying, I gave the approval visibly on Moses' face when he was given the law, and now I give the approval of the interpretation of the law by putting the glory on Stephen's face. But this glory is not outward. This glory is coming from inside him. 
Because now the glory of God is not on the outside of him. It's on the inside. It's not shining on him. It's on the inside of him. It's Jesus Christ. Your only hope of glory. So Jesus is living in him. This glory is coming out on the outside of him. And when they looked at his face, it would remind them of the days when God gave the law to Moses. But that, that, that law given to Moses was a fading glory. God gave his approval by putting the glory of God on the face of Moses. Now he's given his approval to the interpretation that Stephen is given concerning the law. That's why his face is glowing. Whoa, you know that's got to be messing with them. They looked steadfastly upon him. I mean, they were gazing at him. This is one, you know, one of uh, Luke's favorite words, just gaze. They used to just look, you know. Staring at him. Look at that guy's face. He's got the glory of God on his face. His face is shining, radiating. It looks like the face of an angel. Look at this guy. Woo, I think if I saw somebody like that, full of faith and power, somebody signs miracles and wonders breaking out all around, somebody who just whooped the Apostle Paul in the synagogue of the Libertines, somebody like this and now sitting before me and his face is glowing like an angel, I think I'd let him go, just let this guy go. We don't stand a chance. Just turn him loose. Get him out of here. Something's going on here. If God put the glory on Moses' face, but it faded away, and he had to cover that face to keep people from seeing that glory fading. And now we see the glory of God on a man here who's interpreting the law of Moses. you got two possibilities here. that Either you kill him, or you better believe what he's telling you. But it goes against everything that you have set yourself up as. Everything. You've already rejected Jesus Christ. You said He's not God. You've already declared He's worthy of death. And you're going to continue your ritualistic system of worship unto God. And God has brought it all to a completion. It's not something that was going to continue forever and ever. It was only going to go on for a period of time. Don't get rid of Him. Just keep Him there and say, alright, we believe You. We're coming into it. That's what the Sanhedrin should have done. They should have joined the church that day. <laughs> and I believe the Apostle Paul, according to Scripture, I believe that he was a part of that Sanhedrin court. I don't believe he was just a part of that synagogue of the Libertines over there, that he was a part of the synagogue, that he was a part of the Sanhedrin himself. Say amen. amen. And so the Bible tells us, <clears throat> here Stephen is sitting there. This man, an insider, I mean an outsider. He's not Peter. He's not John. He's got a better grasp on what God is doing than Peter does. Peter and John, they've been going up to the temple. They're still going up to the temple. Are you here with me right now? I haven't heard Peter one time say, stand up and talk and, and preach like Stephen did concerning the temple and the law of Moses. They're still going up. Peter's a Jerusalem Jew. He's a Jerusalem Jew. They're still going up to the temple, man. That, that temple of them is still in, it's, it's still important to them. You know what I'm saying here today? So we got a man coming from the outside in. And his ministry is fixing to affect everything that church is doing. Instead of staying locally in Jerusalem, through Stephen, God's going to give a revelation that God is for every nation in this world. And that God will go with you outside of Jerusalem. 
beyond that temple. He'll go outside with you, outside of Jerusalem and all the world. God will be with you and you won't have to bring a sacrifice. You won't have to tell the Gentiles to bring a sacrifice. You won't have to tell the Gentiles to be circumcised. Stephen is fixing to set up an evangelism and a missionary endeavor to the Gentiles of the world. God's fixing to use him to set the whole missionary program up to the nations of the world. Hallelujah to the Lord. Oh, God. Woo! Woo! Glory to God in the highest! Wow. Where's Peter? Where's John? Why isn't Peter and John standing there preaching with him? Why isn't Peter and John debating with him? I tell you, Stephen had more understanding than even they did. I'm not putting Peter down and I'm not putting John down. I'm just telling you that's where they are. It takes an outsider. Let me just tell you this, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to keep you more than five hours this morning, but I'm going to tell you this. That all moves of God, all moves of God in history have always come from the outside in. They don't come from the inside out. They come from the outside in. Say praise the Lord. Because most of the time, <clears throat> when man gets a hold of truth, he makes a monument out of it, or movement out of it, and then a monument out of it, and God, you know, is no longer in the thing. So God's got to bring revival from the outside in. And that's what He does. He uses a Stephen, a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew, who's got a little bit more understanding concerning the temple and the law of God than even Peter and John do at that time. They're not standing up with Him. Have you ever asked yourself the question? He's by Himself. He's an outsider. Say, praise the Lord, church. But one with God is always a majority. Say hallelujah. Especially if he's full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost, man. One with God is always a majority. And this religious system is standing up. That religious system has to be right. On everything they believe, they're going to have to admit they were wrong. It's like some denominational systems today. They would have to completely change their order of service if they believe the Holy Ghost was for them today. If they, if they, if they brought themselves today to believe that the Holy Ghost is for them today and that signs, miracles, and wonders were still for them today, they'd have to change the whole way of doing things. And there's some people in that system, that denominational system, that would not like that. Oh, friend, listen. Are y'all here today? Uh, you know, I've been around for, not real long, but I've been around for a little while and filled with spirit, baptized in His name, filled with the Holy Ghost. And I can tell you uh, the debate about debates. They used to debate all the time. Different denominational systems. You debate the Pentecostal people you know about. Is the Holy Ghost for us today speaking in tongues or signs, miracles, and wonders still for us today? And all the debates, boy, the debates, they would go on. And I listen to those debates. I listen to the debate tapes hours upon hours upon hours, okay? Just all, just as much debate tapes as I could get in me. And man, those Holy Ghost men stand up and preach the Word of God and declare the oneness of God and, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost in Jesus' name, baptism, you know, hallelujah. 
Well, how are you going to stand up against Holy Ghost men? I don't care how many degrees you got besides your name. And so you know who won those debates. Those Holy Ghost men won those debates. And when they won those debates, you know what those other denominational systems would do? They'd go cut their tires, puncture their tires, and... Just, just scream out to him, you sore loser. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth, I'm not kidding you. You see what I'm trying to tell you today? It's just like those debates of old. Those denominational systems, they've got to win. If they don't win everything they believe is going to have to change. Their order of worship, what they believe as far as salvation is concerned. And who Jesus, they got to change everything they believe. And some of you did as well, but you're here. You're like a Stephen that said, I see it. You're like a Stephen that said, wow. I thank God for what I learned in you know, back there at that one. But whoo, there's more. Hallelujah. There's more. God's on the move. God's going. God's going. God's going. Get in the goings of God. Get in the moves of God. Some of you said, I thank God for what I learned in my system here, but I've got more. There's more. And that's what Stephen is telling. There's more now. There's more now. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. So here we go. Say, here we go. Look at them and say, here we go. Move with God from the outside in. So he's sitting before him. And his face is glowing like an angel. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know, some of y'all start glowing like an angel. I start believing you. It's just that some of y'all have this other look on your face. It doesn't look like an angel. And you're talking funny. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I mean, you talk right, and uh, you got the face that looks right, then I might start trusting you a little more. <laughs> How many of y'all got a revelation? Maybe you were raised in a certain denominational system all your life. But now you're filled with the Holy Ghost. Now you're baptized in Jesus' name. And signs and miracles and wonders are breaking out all around you. You've got more than religion now. You've got a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. This man's got a relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. He's got a relationship with a Melchizedek priesthood, a king priest who's the Lord of glory. He's a part of a new kingdom, a new nation, a new temple, a new covenant. He's baptized in a new name. Woo. Uh-huh. Aren't you thankful for the truth today? I thank God for the truth today. See, some of y'all might look at me and say, well, you were raised in this way, Pastor. No, 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 I wasn't. I was raised in a totally different denominational system. But I thank God for the truth today. I thank God. I thank God. I'm not coming with pride. I'm not coming with arrogance. I'm coming with thankfulness this morning. I thank God every day of my life that God gave me this revelation. 
Say praise the Lord. Somebody shout into the Lord. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I never wanted to be an insider to anything. As far as denominational systems are concerned or the things of men, I never wanted to be an insider. Never wanted it. I, I still today don't want to have anything to do with it. Because God, when He sends revival, it's going to come from the outside in. Give the Lord praise in the house. So, so anyway, let me get moving here. Stephen's sitting there. Hallelujah. Before him. Face glowing like an angel. He knew he was going to die that day, church. He knew it. He knew it. They accused him of blasphemy. He knows what happens to a blasphemer. According to Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 24, I know Deuteronomy 13, you got a false prophet, you got somebody blaspheming the name of Jesus or the name of God, I should say. What they do with them by the law is they stone them to death. He knew he's going to die that day. Then the high priest, and we know him, of course, as Caiaphas at this time. Then said the high priest, are these things so? You know, I, I really think Caiaphas, he would have given anything not to be the high priest in those days. Jesus stood before him. And then John, Peter and John stood before him with a lame man healed by the resurrected Lord. And now we got Stephen, this Hellenistic Jew, you know, and a bunch of priests coming into the kingdom of the living God. And here he is standing and Caiaphas has to deal with another one of these. I think he had just about done anything he could not to be in there that day. Why don't you just get up, Caiaphas, and step down and join him? That's all you had to do. What about Gamaliel, doctor of the law? Why didn't Gamaliel side with them? In the fifth chapter, it says, he said, if this be of God, you'll be fighting against God. But Gamaliel took, never took a stand. He said, let's take a wait and see approach. Let's take a wait and see approach. We have no record that he ever came into the kingdom. But his student will, Paul will, Paul's going to witness everything that is happening. He will never forget what he heard Stephen say. What Paul's doctrine is concerning the law and the New Testament church that he wrote about in the epistles, it all started right here when he heard Stephen preach. When he heard Stephen preach, he knew right there, later on when he would be converted, exactly how the law and the gospel was to be declared in his epistles. He got it right there from Stephen. High priest said, these things... Okay, so now, praise the Lord, he takes an opportunity to defend himself. He's going to bring his apology. His apology. Say apology. How many of y'all know what apology is, don't you? What does that mean? Very good. Apology is, this is why we're right. Apologia or apologetics says this is what we believe and this is the reason why we believe it. This is why we're right. When we apologize, we confess we're wrong. Some of you do. Okay, amen. But Stephen's apology is not to 
confess he's wrong, his apologia, apologetics, is to declare what and why he's right. Say amen. amen. And he uses the Old Testament law and doesn't mention Jesus one time until the end of his message. You think I'm blaspheming Moses? You think that I'm blaspheming the name of God? He said, no. Through his statement here, he will say, it's you who have always resisted the Holy Ghost. It's you when God sent His messengers to you. You rejected God's messengers. It's you who've not kept the law. Praise God. It's not me. It's you. Ooh, when he gets through with them, I mean the Holy Ghost, he's going to give a history of the nation of Israel. This is the longest message in the whole book of Acts. He's going to explain his position. He's going to bring his apologia, his apologetics, and explain why he's right and why they're wrong. They've accused him of blaspheming God and blaspheming the law. Say amen. Amen. Uh, blaspheming the holy place and the law, the temple. Speaking against the temple, they've accused him of that. And they've accused him of speaking against the law. So he goes to the law. And he says, this is what it really means. And this is what it really says. Okay? So he starts out with Abraham, the father of the faithful. And he says, God appeared to Abraham when he was in Ur of the Chaldees. God is not limited to that house over there. You can't make God an idol and put Him in a box over there. Because God appeared to the Father of this nation when He wasn't even in this land. God is not limited to this land and God is not limited to that house. You ought to know that. Your Old Testament declares that God appeared to Abraham. He's in the Chaldeas. And that was before Abraham was a worshiper of Yahweh. It was when Abraham was a worshiper of pagan gods, the moon god. <laughs> Joshua says, let's us know, they worshiped idols. Over there in Mesopotamia, or the Chaldeas where Abraham lived, he would have worshipped the moon god. God said, you're a worshiper. You're just worshiping the wrong one. See, that's what happened to, for some of you. He said, you're worshiping God. You're just worshiping God the wrong way. Oh, see, I'm feeling good right now. He said, you're worshiping God, but you're worshiping the wrong way. So the Bible says God appeared to Abraham while he was over there in Ur of the Chaldeas. They're not in that land. There wasn't even a temple of God at that time in existence. But that didn't stop God from appearing to him. You can't put him in a box. Say praise the Lord. And Abraham, he goes on and says, Abraham, he went and he sojourned in this land. 
He was a stranger in this land. There was a time when God promised it to Abraham, but Abraham didn't own it. It didn't belong to him. He was just a stranger. He was just a sojourner. He just walked the land. He didn't own it yet. It wasn't inherited by them yet. God appeared to him when he didn't even own the land. He appeared to him in a foreign country. Woo! Wow! This is awesome stuff. Uh, yeah, and he gave Abraham, he gave Abraham the circumcision. It was a sign of the covenant of Moses. As Abrahamic covenant, the, Mo, the, the circumcision was given to him. The blood must be shed. It has to do with blood. Say amen. Give God praise. But that typical circumcision of the flesh was only a type of the need to be circumcised in the heart. Oh, yeah. Praise the Lord. The Bible goes on and tells us, you keep on reading, say amen. I'm not going to read all these verses. Verse 7, The nation to whom they shall be in bondage shall I judge, say God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. After they are in Egyptian bondage. He said, I'm going to bring them out of Egypt, and then when I bring them out of Egypt, then they're going to dwell in this place. Then they will inherit this place. Then they'll own this place. But I, God, God is, I'm, you know, I'm not God. I mean, I'm, Lord, help me today. I'm just trying, I'm speaking, you know, I'm talking, oh, geez, that scares me. But what God is saying is this. I was with them in Egypt. And Moen, uh, what's his name? Stephen. Count them, count them. I'm probably wrong on the number, but I think he mentions Egypt six times in the passage. Count them. If I'm wrong, tell me next week and I'll correct it. But what I'm trying to tell you, how many times he ever mentioned Egypt, he's letting them know that God was with them in Egypt. When they were outside of this land, God is not a local deity. You can't keep God in a land. You can't keep God in a box. You ought to know that. Praise God, I feel good all over. Oh, Jesus. But he goes on, he's going to tell him, he's a patriarch's move with him. He sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him in Egypt. Yeah, you remember Joseph. Oh, yeah, yeah, you remember Joseph, don't you? The fathers. The twelve tribe, the twelve sons of Israel, the twelve sons of Jacob rejected Joseph. Joseph was sent by God. Joseph was called by God. Joseph's a type of Jesus Christ. And the nation, the twelve tribes, rejected Joseph. Oh, he's going somewhere with this. He's letting them know ever deliver God, ever deliverer God ever sent you, you rejected them. Every one of them. Every one of them. Twelve tribes of Israel rejected Joseph. And it wasn't until after they rejected Joseph that they found him to be the Lord of the world. Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. See, he's going somewhere with this. 
God's not limited to a temple. He's not limited to a land. God appeared to Abraham and other the Chaldeans. Every deliverer God has raised up for you. You rejected them first. They were sent by God, called by God. You rejected them. And after they were rejected, when they came to you the second time, then you saw who they were. After you rejected Joseph, you found out he's the Lord of the world. <laughs> oh, I give God praise. He's the Lord. God raised him up in Egypt, set him upon the throne. He was seen as the Lord over the whole world. After his rejection. Woo, he's going, he's going, he's going, he's going. Yeah, you rejected Joseph. And then later you found out he's the Savior of the world. And God was with Joseph, by the way, when he was over in Egypt. So that means God's not limited to a land or a, a building. Love it. All right, y'all want to go on? He delivered him out of all of his afflictions, verse 10, and gave him favor and wisdom. In the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, he made him governor over Egypt. See, Egypt, 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 Egypt. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Hanan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. Twelve sons of Jacob. And at the second time, Joseph... Oh, look at that. At the second time. The first time you rejected him. He's the dreamer who said you would bow down to him. You rejected him. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brother, and Joseph Kinder was made known unto Pharaoh. The second time, they got a revelation that he's the one they would bow to. The second time. The first time he came, they rejected him. The second time he comes, they'll know he's the Lord of the world. Give the Lord praise. Verse 14, then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and all his kindred, three score and fifteen souls, seventy-five of them. And so Jacob went down to Egypt and died, he and our fathers. He went down where? To Egypt. But the Bible says God was with him. <clears throat> yeah. There's no sacrifice going on in Egypt to God. There's no Aaronic priesthood in Egypt. There's no feast days in Egypt. <laughs> Ooh, I feel good all over. They were carried over into, into Shechem. Sychem in the, in this one here, but it's Shechem, and laid in the sepulchre of Abraham, brought forth the sum of money, the sons of Emer, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Say amen. amen. <clears throat> Fulfillment time. Till another king arose, which knew not Joseph, that Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred and evil and treated our fathers so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live in which time Moses was born. So now he jumps to Moses. 
He's not against Moses. He's not against the law of God. He's not blaspheming God. He's not even against the temple. He's telling them by the history of the Old Testament, the movings and goings of God. You can't limit him to a land or to a box. And you rejected Joseph. Well, let's see about Moses, the one that you're so concerned about. Stephen. Blaspheming or speaking against Moses. Well, all right. He said, at which time Moses was born, it was exceedingly fair and nourished up in the father's house three months. He said, when they saw Moses, he was so beautiful to look at. Even Pharaoh's daughter noticed how handsome the little boy was. When she opened the ark, the little ark, the bulrushes that he was in, she went, ah! Not his, his beauty. I'm drunk. You can tell when I get drunk, man. <laughs> you know, some people, you can't tell when they're drunk. They've got it unreserved and under control. But you can tell when I get drunk. <laughs> Why didn't she jump back in amazement? Not because of his beauty, but he was a Hebrew boy. He was circumcised the eighth day. And they were the ones that were trying to kill in that time. But God was with them in Egypt. And God was preparing a deliverer, a redeemer for them named Moses who was a type of that which was to come. This deliverer. Bible says, when he, verse 20, when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. He could have been the next Pharaoh of Egypt. He was a powerful military general. You study history, you'll find it out. He was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. Brilliant, brilliant man. Powerful general. Strong in body. The Bible tells us Verse 23. And when he was full 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit brethren the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended them and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He's 40 years of age. He could be the next Pharaoh of Egypt. But he's a Hebrew. His mama, when he was a little boy, taught him the ways of God. Taught him there was one God. Because Pharaoh's daughter brought, brought him back to Jochebed and Amram. And their names speak of the glory of God. And Jochebed and Amram taught little baby Moses until he was weaned about the oneness of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And they put that knowledge of God in Moses and the glory of God in Moses. He might be training all the wisdom of Egypt, but when he was a little boy, Mama taught him about the oneness of God. Taught him about the one God. Not all these gods in Egypt, but the one God. Who, by the way, is still with us in Egypt. 
So when he saw one of his brothers being mistreated, he killed an Egyptian, hit him in the sand. He had to run for his life because they rejected him as their deliverer. So he goes for 40 years on the backside of the desert. First 40 years, he thought he was somebody. The second 40 years on the backside of the desert, he finds he's nobody. And the last 40 years of his life, he finds out what God can do with nobodies. So at the end of his first 40 years in Egypt, he has to flee for his life because his brethren reject him. 40 years on the backside of the desert over there with Jethro, his father-in-law. And at the end of 40 years, God appears to him in a burning bush that catches on fire but is not consumed. And it's not just an angel in that bush, it's God speaking in that bush. Tells him, I am that I am. I am that I am. Yahweh, go, go and speak to this people. Tell Mo, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So at the end of 80, of that 40 years, he's now 80 years old, he goes up into Egypt to be the deliverer, having been rejected once before. Now appears to them a second time. And they believe him at that time. Not without conflict. Not without struggle. But finally they believe that he is the deliverer. The second time. Verse 26, And the next day He showed Himself unto them that strove and would have set them at one again, saying... So now, you know, He's he's trying to fix this quarrel between these two brethren, you know. He's killed an Egyptian, buried him. Now He's going to try to fix this quarrel between two brethren. And the Bible says, He said, Why do you do wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at the sand, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared to him in the words of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord, a flame of fire in a bush. That angel of the Lord is called God. And when Moses saw it, he wondered at the sight and as he drew nearer to behold it, the voice of the Lord came into him. That very place where he sees that burning bush, God speaking to him in that burning bush, is the very place he would lead Israel later on in the future. To that very place. He wondered at the sight. He said, said, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses trembled and durst not behold. That's the one my mama told me about. You're the one my mama told me about. Oh, hallelujah to the Lord. God is now sent, going to send this man who was rejected once before, but now will be received a second time. He's sent by God. He's called by God. Now, having been rejected the first time, he's coming back and will be accepted the second time. All this type and shadow, all this written word was pointing to the living word. You crucified him because you didn't relate the living word with the written word. Are y'all going to sleep on me? I don't know what else to do. I can't do flips up here. No, I'm honest. I can't do no flip. So if you want me to do a flip, I can't do flips. 
Never could. God, the one God of the Bible has appeared to him. Then said the Lord to him, Put out thy shoes from thy feet for the place where thou standest. says, Holy ground, what are you talking about? God out there in the wilderness. God in a bush, a thorn bush. Not in a temple. In a thorn bush. How can you live in this God? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's not me that's speaking against Moses. He knew the history better than they did. This Moses whom they refused saying, who made thee a ruler and a judge? The same did God send to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness. Forty years. Forty years. God moving there in Egypt. God in control of the land of Egypt. God who's over the land of Egypt. God. Oh, you get this? You get this? The Lord of heaven and earth. He brought them out. All right, show Psalm 21, verse 37. In the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye care. You accuse me of standing against Moses? You accuse me of rejecting the law of Moses? It's not me that's rejecting Moses. You're not only rejecting Moses, you're rejecting the one Moses pointed you to. You're rejecting the prophet that Moses said would be like him. You accuse me of one thing, but you've taken it further than that. You not only have rejected Moses, you've rejected Moses because you didn't believe what Moses said about the one that would come. You are the ones who broke the law. You're the ones who blasphemed God. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, that assembly in the wilderness with, with the angel which spake to him in the mount, in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively orchards to give unto us. Yeah, we know. God gave the law to Moses. He's going right through the history. He's not rejecting all. He's not rejecting the Old Testament. He's not rejecting the Word of God. He's not rejecting the law of Moses. He said this is the history of the whole thing. You've just misinterpreted it. Look at this. To whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. You talk about how you're faithful to Moses. You disobeyed Moses. Ever deliverer, God ever sent you, you disobeyed him. You resisted the, your daddies, your fathers resisted the Holy Ghost in their day. God raised up deliverers and you rejected them, and it wasn't until they came to you the second time that you understood who they were. It's you who've not kept the law.
He said, your fathers would not obey. But thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to bondage. They disobeyed this Moses. Look at that. Verse 40. Saying unto Aaron, make us gods to go before us for us for this Moses which brought us out of the land of Egypt. We wot not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They made a golden calf out of that thing and declared that that golden calf was God. You think you got that kind of God you can set up in that temple, an idol? They tried to do it in the wilderness when Moses went up the mountain. They made that golden calf. And they called it God. We've got to put God in a visible form. We've got to make God into an image that we can see, that we can bow down to. We've got to make God into an idol. We've got to localize Him. There's a lot of people today. They bring a golden calf to church with them every time they come to church. They're worshiping God. Well, they say they're worshiping God, but they reject every deliverer that God has ever sent. Come on, Aaron. Make us gods to go before us. They made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice. Look at the idolatry. You claim to be keepers of the law? They were idol worshipers. They disobeyed Moses, turned their back on God, wanted to go to Egypt and set up a golden calf and called it God. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as is written in the book of the prophets. O ye house of Israel, have ye offered to be slain beasts and sacrificed by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? Yea, ye took up the tabernacle of Moses. You took that true tabernacle that God gave you. And that true sacrificial system that God gave you. And in place of that, true tabernacle of God. But the true sacrifices that God gave you is a type and a shadow of that which was to come. Instead of worshiping God there, in that way, he said, you can, Stephen's tell him. He said, they backslid completely. Instead of following the deliverer and following the, following the law of Moses, they backslid. Instead of continuing in the true tabernacle of God that was set up in the wilderness as a type and a shadow, they started, they set up a tabernacle to Moloch, the sun god. They set up a tabernacle, he said, not only to the sun god Moloch, but Rimphan. They set up these idols to worship the sun and to worship Saturn. They worship the heavenly host. You claim to be faithful to God? Verse where you took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God of Rephaim. Figures which you made to worship them and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. So now he said, i got to take you into Babylon. We're looking at it. Look at the history. Why they were captured and taken into Babylon. 
You worship a Baal. You worship a sun god. You worship the host of heaven. So I will send you into captivity into Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle wilderness in the wilderness as he had appointed speaking to Moses that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus or Joshua in the possession of the Gentiles whom God drove out before the face of the fathers unto the days of David. So you started worshiping. You set up a tabernacle of the host of heaven. God gave you the tabernacle of Moses. You had the tabernacle of Moses with you, that ironic priesthood in the wilderness. And then you took it into the land of promise when God gave you that inheritance. And that lasted all the ways to the days of David. And then David set up a tabernacle. David set up a tabernacle. Tabernacle of David. No sacrifice being made there. It's a picture of the finished work. No sacrifice needed. Tabernacle of David where people would worship God 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Men and women and children could go up to that tabernacle where the ark was located and worship God in spirit and truth and dance before Him in praise and worship. No sacrifice being made there. A type of that which is to come. And then Solomon, your son, he built a temple. And he went back to the Yahweh type of worship where the sacrifice of an Aaronic priesthood was offered. But along with that, the worship of the Davidic tabernacle. Praise and singing would be heard in the temple. But, but don't you understand that the temple did not house God? How are you going to put Him in the temple? Watch what he says. Watch this. Who found... Okay, watch this. I want to go back up. Verse 4. Which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus and the possession of the Gentiles whom God drave out before the face of the fathers under the days of David <clears throat> who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle for the God of Jacob but Solomon built him a house. A temple. How be it the Most High dwelleth not in Temples made with hands, as saith the prophets. Yahweh put His name there. His name represented His presence. You would see His glory in the most holy place. The manifest presence of God. But it didn't confine Him. It didn't contain Him. His name was there. But you need to realize that He's not just Yahweh, the one who gave you that old covenant or gave you the Mosaic way of worship under an Aaronic priesthood. He's the Most High God. Which, oh, hallelujah. He said, you need to... You need to think this through now. He said, you need to go back a little bit in history. He said, there was a time where there was a man by the name of Melchizedek. He's the priest of the Most High God. And he came out and he met Abraham. Genesis 14. And when he met Abraham, he had the emblems of a finished work. He had the bread and the wine in his hands. He's Melchizedek. The priest of who? The Most High God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Give the Lord praise. So now he's saying, you need to remember there was a day 
of Melchizedek. And in the days of Melchizedek, there was no temple. In the days of Melchizedek, there was no Aaronic priesthood. In the days of Melchizedek, there was no sacrifice. In the days of Melchizedek, you had the emblems of a finished work. And he is the priest of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He's not just the Lord over Israel. He's not just the Lord over one temple here in Israel. He's the possessor of all the nations of the world. He's the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He doesn't just, he's not just in control of Jerusalem. He's not just here in this temple. He's the possessor of everything. He's the Lord of the universe. Well, you know that. Because when you went into Babylon, after you were captured and your temple was destroyed, and the sacrifices came to an end and you went into Babylon with no sacrifice and with no temple you get a revelation of the most high God that's why when you look in the book of Daniel they make reference to God as the most high God possessor of heaven what they're saying is God is here in Babylon with us now listen to me they saw him as the most high God possessor of heaven and earth just like Melchizedek was the priest of. No sacrifice, no temple. When they go into captivity, there is no sacrifice. There is no most ironic priesthood. It's all gone. It's been destroyed. And if you don't understand this God, you will think that when the temple was destroyed, that God was destroyed. They so linked that temple with God when the prophets rose up and declared that they would be judged and carried into Babylonian captivity in Jeremiah the 17th chapter. They said the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. They put their confidence in that building. And because the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these, there's no way these prophets can be right. God is in that temple. Oh, really? No, Ezekiel saw him leave that temple. He saw the glory of God leave that temple. So don't put your confidence in a building. God left that. Come on, somebody. Can't limit him to a, a little temple. He's the Most High God. So in Babylon, they have to worship him as the Most High God. Just like the days of Melchizedek. No sacrifice. Are y'all getting, are you with me here? See, Stephen's got a revelation that Jesus is the most high God. That there is no need for sacrifice in a Ronnie priesthood. It's a new priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. The priest of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. He's not speaking against that temple. He's letting them know. It just had, it wasn't a permanent thing. It was a, just a temporary thing. We're in something now that's bigger than that. Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. He's not called the Son. He's not just, you know, are y'all with me? I don't want to get into all that. That gets pretty heavy. But I mean, 
So, I'm just telling you that He's showing them there was a time in their history when they worshipped this one God outside of their land and with no temple at all and no priesthood and no sacrifice. He wasn't speaking against the temple. He was just giving them the truth of that Old Testament. When they were in Babylon, after the temple was destroyed and the, sacri- the priesthood was over, did they ever keep any feasts in Babylon? No. They're worshiping Him now in Babylon as the Most High God. Say praise the Lord. Okay, let's look at it. I'm almost done. Isn't this beautiful? Solomon built him a house. Howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands as saith the prophets. You think God is over in that temple? Well, if He's not in that temple, where is God? The Most High dwelt not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophets. Solomon said that when he built the temple. First Kings, the 8th chapter, he said it. He said, God... Come on, somebody. He said, the heavens of heavens cannot contain him. So when Solomon built the temple, he even said, God doesn't. Come on, somebody. You can't put God. You can't contain him in this place. You can't confine him. So God put his name there, which represents his presence. Even, come on, even Solomon knew that you couldn't confine God or contain God in that temple. Make him an idol God. Solomon knew that. And he says the prophet spoke about it too. Look at Isaiah 66. He said the prophet spoke about it. Are y'all getting bored? Isaiah 66. Anybody there? That's in the Old Testament, by the way. I'm showing you he's using the Old Testament. Isaiah 66. <clears throat> Thus saith the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built unto me? And where is the place of my rest? He said, heaven is my throne. He said, the earth is where I put my feet up. He got long legs. I'm just telling you, he's the, he's the omnipresent God. How are you going to put him in a temple? How are you going to combine him? How are you going to contain him? He's the most high God. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. Where's the house you built to me? I'm going to dwell in the hearts of men and women. 
I won't be just a local deity in a local temple. He said, I'm going to dwell in, in a people. I'm going to dwell in the hearts of people. I'm going to be the Lord over all the world. I'm going to be the king over all nations. He wasn't against them. He wasn't blaspheming. He was telling the truth about it. Verse 2, For all these things have mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but this, to this man will I look, even to him that is a poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. He that killeth an ox is as he slew a man. He that sacrificed a lamb as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offered an oblation as if it offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delighteth in their abominations. So you start bringing those sacrifices, this way it's going, he's way, this way I'm going to look at it. Praise the Lord. Verse 48, The Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. That's why God could appear to Abraham and Ur of the Chaldees. That's why God could appear to Joseph or be with Joseph in Joseph. Hallelujah. In Egypt, praise God. Be... That's why God could appear to Moses in the backside of a desert somewhere in a burning bush because you can't limit him to a place. And he's using the Old Testament to prove his point. Say amen. Amen. See, as Yahweh, yod heh vav God revealed Himself as a covenant-bringing God. And as Yahweh, He gave gave them the law of Moses. And as Yahweh, He gave them the Mosaic priesthood as Yahweh. But as the Most High God, He was before His revelation as Yahweh. And so he's taking you to a time when there was no sacrifice. Woo! When he was known as the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, not just the creator of the heavens and earth, but he possessed it all. Before his revelation, as Yahweh given the Mosaic covenant, they worshiped him that way. Ooh, I feel good. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hands made all things? You built this house and you think that what you built I can be confined and contained in? He said, I built, he said, I created the whole universe. I'm the most high God. You're going to put me in a little box? How are you going to do that? Even Solomon didn't believe that when he built the temple. Oh, I love him today. Now, (laughs) after he showed them all the redeemers and deliverers that God sent them through history and how they rejected those redeemers and deliverers and disobeyed His Word and showed Him Them that God is not limited to a land or a temple. He now burst forth on them. 
And he says basically to them that the way they have treated God in all their history as a nation is what you're doing right now. You point a finger at me and saying I'm blaspheming the law and the house. You you say I am and look at look at how you treated God through history. You didn't obey the deliverers. You didn't accept them until after they came to you the second time. You rejected the law of God. You went into idolatry and God had to send you into Babylonian captivity. Come on, somebody. You had a false concept of what the temple was all about. And you accused me. Takes them through the history. Well, at this point, they know where, where he's going. They know. Verse 51. He just lets them have it. Now, remember, the Bible said he was full of faith and the Holy Ghost. The Bible says he was full of grace and power. That means he was sweet, grace and power. Sweet but powerful. You with me today? There wasn't nothing wrong with Stephen's character. There wasn't nothing wrong with his disposition. He was a man of grace and power. He was sweet and powerful at the same time. Just like Pastor right here. Sweet and powerful at the same time. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'm drunk, brother. <laughs> Wasn't nothing wrong with him. The Bible says, he looks at them, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised of a heart. Ooh, man, don't you know? They're fixing to kill you. What are you doing, Stephen? Why don't you try to be politically correct? You just got through telling them that they killed the prophets that were sent to him. They rejected Joseph. They rejected and disobeyed Moses. Come on, somebody. You just got through telling them their fathers broke the law. They claimed to keep when they killed the prophets. And they disobeyed the one who gave them the law. They broke the law. Say amen. amen. You're stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. You're stubborn. That's what stiff-necked means. You're stubborn. Ain't nobody in here like that. Some of these people, I think they... I've seen some of these people. Stiff-necked, just as stubborn as an old pole. Hard-headed Stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart. Yeah, they're circumcised on the eighth day according to the law of Moses. But he said, what you need to understand is there's something more than being physically circumcised. He said, you're uncircumcised in heart. What he just told them was, you're a heathen on the inside. You're a heathen on the inside. Stubborn, uncircumcised in heart and ears. 
You refused to hear and listen to those who preached to you. You killed the prophets. You disobeyed Moses. You rejected every deliverer and every redeemer that God ever sent to you. And you're doing the same thing today. You're rejecting Jesus Christ. You're rejecting the Redeemer that God has sent to you even today. You're doing the same thing they did and you're accusing me of blasphemy. And never would listen. Your fathers wouldn't listen. You're not listening today. You resist the Holy Ghost. You're stiff-necked and you're uncircumcised in heart. You got the outward form, but you're not circumcised in heart. You're not faithful to God. You're not loyal to God in your heart. You're not committed to God in your heart. You're not obedient to His Word. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did. So do you. Always resisting the Holy Ghost of God. He did the same thing that they did throughout the history. He went by the Word of God and showed it to them. You're resisting the Holy Ghost today. You're resisting the goings of God today. You're resisting the move of God today. You're resisting the outpouring of His Spirit. Verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? I told you they killed the prophets. I jumped ahead when I preached it to you into the passage. But they killed the prophets. He said, which of the prophets have you, you have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. Moses pointed to him. The prophets pointed to him. The tabernacle of the wilderness pointed to him. The prophets declared, how are you going to put this eternal God, this omnipresent God in a physical temple? He dwells in an eternal temple. He got a revelation that what God is doing is an inward thing instead of an outward thing. A spiritual thing. An invisible kingdom in an invisible tabernacle. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's what he's trying to bring them to. The priests of the Most High God. He said, they showed before the coming of the just one of whom you have been now the betrayers and murderers. He said, you claim to be obedient to the law of Moses and the prophets. He said, but you killed the prophets. And you disobeyed Moses. And you went into idolatry. The prophets told you about the just one that was going to come. That's a title for the Messiah. And he said, Stephen said, you murdered him. You murdered the just one, the one that you were looking for to come, the Messiah that was to come that the Old Testament prophesied about. The one the prophets pointed to is come and you murdered Him. And you accuse me of blaspheming the law and blaspheming God? He said, it's you. You received the law by the dispensation, disposition of angels and have not kept it. 
It's you that haven't kept the law of Moses. When you killed the prophets, you broke the law. When you killed Jesus, you broke the law. And they're fixing to break the law again. The law of man. They're fixing to drag Stephen out of that Sanhedrin court. Drag him by the heels to the rock of execution, which is a violation of Roman law, and kill him. They're fixing to break the law again. So he looks at them. He says, you never kept the law. When they heard this thing, they were cut to the heart. And they were they gnashed on him with their teeth. They were, man, literally like they were just cut with a blade. It infuri- They got so furious... They got so, they were so angry at this man. They began to gnash on him with their teeth like wild animals. His face glowing like an angel, declaring to them that he's the correct interpreter of the law of Moses, not a rejecter of it. And their face full of demonic forces and power, like animals gnashing on them. Same spirits today, just different people. The people are not the same today, but the spirits are the same today. They're still in the world today. And you will see that spirit rise up in religious people like animals. They're going to gnash on him with their teeth. He cut him to the heart. But he being full of the Holy Ghost looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing on the right hand. Say amen. amen. What, what are they doing here? Verse 58 tells us they're going to take him out of that court. I mean, it's a frenzy. It's like a feeding frenzy. It's like, it's like throwing meat into the, to the ocean. Blood on that meat. A fury. A feeding fury. Like sharks. And gnash on him with her teeth. Take him out to the rock of execution. They see they weren't just they wouldn't just have Stephen standing out there on the side of the road and where they'd pick up rocks and throw it at him. There was a specific place. It's the same place they tried to throw Jesus off. They tried to try to try to throw Jesus, the one who said that he was the true temple. They tried to throw him off the side of the cliff, the Bible says one day, and he just walked right through their midst. The power of God suspended their ability to touch Him. It wasn't time for Him to die. But they would have done the same thing to Jesus. They would have thrown Him off the side of the cliff of the rocks of execution and put rocks on top of Him. They drug Stephen out of that council chamber right there that day of the Sanhedrin court. They drug Him by the heels to the rock of execution. They threw Him down off of that cliff and He went crashing down upon the rocks below. 
And then what they would do, they would pick up rocks and they would begin to throw rocks down upon him. And there's no way for him to go. He cannot escape. And one rock after another, huge boulders, other smaller rocks coming down upon him, crushing his skull, crushing his bones. Blood. Rocks in his teeth. Rocks in his eyes. Rocks in his ears. And while they're killing him, Stoning him. The first martyr in the New Testament. They laid the outer cloaks of the witnesses down at the feet of one named Saul. They laid the mantle of Stephen at his feet. The outer cloak. They laid the mantles of these murderers at the feet of Saul. And Saul voted as a Sanhedrin member to have him executed as a blasphemer. The mantle of Stephen touched Paul that day. The mantle of power and authority. The mant- Are y'all here today? The mantle which would give Saul the ability to see Jesus. Saul would never forget the message that Stephen preached that day. The blood of Stephen would become the seedbed of evangelism to the world. To the Gentiles all over the world. Going forth and telling them Jesus is the true foundation of this temple. He's the true temple and He's building a new temple and there's no need for you to be circumcised in the flesh and there's no need for you to bring a sacrifice. He's enough! And as you go out and preach this gospel to the nations, God will be with you in those nations. He's the Most High God. Saul would never forget this day. Conviction gripped his heart. While they're killing him, while they're stoning him to death, while he's got rocks in his eyes and mouth and ears and bones being crushed. He said, verse 56, or verse 55, but he being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of In that moment, what he had been preaching to them was manifested to him. God is with you, Stephen, at this moment in time. Once upon a time, God is with you and God is going to use what's happening to you once upon a time to touch a man by the name of Saul. And God brought Saul there that day once upon a time so Saul could hear and see this so Saul would be converted and change the world and preach like nobody in the New Testament ever preached. God set that whole thing up that day. Stephen saw that God, Jesus, was with him. And it doesn't say that Stephen looked up in the heavens and full of the Holy Ghost and saw God. You can't see the eternal Spirit. It's invisible. He saw the glory of God. Where did he see the glory of God? 
The Bible says the glory of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. He didn't see the Spirit of God. He saw the glory of God. He saw it in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, watch this. He saw the glory of God in Jesus standing on the right hand of God. If God is a spirit, where's his right hand? This is anthropomorphic idioms. It's an idiom. When you say Jesus standing on the right hand of God, it's not literal. It means Jesus has all power and all authority. It is an idiom. He didn't literally see Jesus standing on the right hand of the Spirit of God. He saw Jesus with all authority and all power and He saw the glory of God where? In the face of Jesus Christ. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. That's what Daniel saw. In Daniel 7.13 when they were worshiping Him as the Most High God. That's what Daniel saw in the 13th verse of Daniel 7. He saw Jesus, the Son of Man. Say, Son of Man. Daniel 7.13 I saw in the night visions and behold one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought, brought Him near before Him and there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and language should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. All people Nations and language should serve Him. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Son of Man. He's the King who will rule over all nations, not just Jerusalem. He's the one who stood before Caiaphas and said, You shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. Amen. When did Caiaphas see Jesus sitting at the right hand of God coming in the clouds of glory? He saw Jesus as the Son of Man in the face of that, that cripple that was healed. Caiaphas saw this Jesus in Stephen's life. He saw this Jesus, this Jesus that told him that he would see him sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. The Bible says Caiaphas ripped his garments, breaking the law. When Stephen says that, when he says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Caiaphas knew that this is the King immortal. 
This is the King Eternal. This is the one who would rule over all nations. This is the Messiah, the Christ of God. And we've been accused of murdering him. And not only is he the, the Lord of heaven, who was rejected the first time he came, but will be received the second time he comes by Israel. He's also the God man. Read Psalm 110, verse 1. Somebody get it quickly for me. I'll show you what I'm telling you. The Son of Man, the ruler of the universe, the Lord of heaven and earth, the Most High God is Jesus. Read it, Luke. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. The Lord said unto my what? Lord. If you read the whole passage there, that passage is declaring you that the Messiah will not just be a man, but the Messiah will be the Lord Himself. And so when Stephen said, I see, oh hallelujah, Woo, glory to God. When he said, said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He was telling him He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the ruler over all nations. Come on, somebody. All nations are going to serve Him. He was telling them that He is the God-man. The God-man. But watch this. Here it says He's standing. When you see Him setting, Hebrews lets you know that means the Aaronic priesthood is finished. He sat down. But when he stands up here, he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek and he's involved in an ongoing ministry. Did you catch that? It's an ongoing ministry after the order of Melchizedek. He's standing. He's serving in that capacity. When he sat down, the Aaron priesthood was over. Now watch. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. They didn't want to hear this. Ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, saying, Lord Jesus! They didn't want to hear that Jesus was God. Lord Jesus! When he said, Lord Jesus! They knew he was declaring that Jesus was not just the Messiah, not just a man. They knew he was declaring that he's the Lord over heaven and earth. He's the creator and possessor of heaven and earth. And you cannot limit this eternal God to one place. They knew he was declaring that this Jesus was the Lord God of creation. They didn't want to hear him say, Lord Jesus. They didn't want to hear him say he was God. When he prayed, he called upon God saying, Lord Jesus. He wasn't praying to the second person. He was praying to God. Come in the flesh. Cried unto God saying, Lord Jesus, lay not this sin to their charge. Say amen. 
Woo, glory to God. They stoned Stephen calling upon God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Only God can receive your spirit. He is Lord. The one who saw the Lord Jesus Christ, his mantle is touching another man by the name of Saul. And in the ninth chapter, Saul will say, Who art thou, Lord? I don't know you like Stephen knew you. I don't know who you are like Stephen knew. But he called upon you, Lord Jesus. Who art thou, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom thou persecuted. Now Saul is mantled to see the Lord just like Stephen saw the Lord. God set it all up that day. He brought Saul there once upon a time so that he would be mantled to see what Stephen saw. Saul would never forget the debate he lost. He would never forget what he saw in the face of Stephen. He would never hear the message that he heard Stephen preach. God is not limited to that house. He's the Lord in an invisible temple. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek and I see him there in the heavens. That's where God is. It's in the body of Jesus Christ and it's now in His body, the church. Judaism is finished. It's finished. It's done with. It's over. It's fulfilled. But this is what the Old Testament said was going to happen. You just misinterpreted. You misinterpreted the Messiah when He came because you had the letter but you didn't see the living word. He's the one Moses pointed to. He's the one the prophets preached about. He's the one they typified by being reject, called, sent, rejected, and then received the second time. It's you who have broken the law of Moses. It's you who have rejected your, your deliverer and your redeemer. Saul would never forget it once upon a time. God brought him to that place where he would get a revelation that Jesus was the Messiah and God in flesh. God set it all up. God was in the circumstances. And when Stephen is dying with rocks in his mouth, in his teeth, in his ears, his skull is crushed, his bones have been broken. He kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. It's Calvary all over again. Because it was Jesus who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Into thy hands I commend my spirit, said the Lord. 
And so now, Stephen is doing the same thing. He's got the same nature as Jesus. He said, lay not this sin to their charge. Whose charge are you going to lay it upon then? If God doesn't put that charge, this sin on their account and charge them for it, whose account is God going to put it on? The murder of Stephen. He's going to put it on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. That's where the charge will be laid. If he doesn't pray this prayer, Paul wouldn't be saved. But because he prayed, lay not this sin to their charge, forgive them. When Paul repents, God's going to forgive him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Even though he persecuted the church, God's going to forgive him. And I close. The Bible says, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Say he fell asleep. I will say this by way of practical application, not just by exposition this morning. Practical application. If you don't pray for some people after the way they treat you, if you don't pray for them, you can't forgive them. The first thing you do when people treat you badly is pray for them. Because when you pray for them, then you'll be able to forgive them. And when he said, lay not this sin to their charge, what he's doing, he's making sure his spirit's right when he dies. That there's no anger, that there's no malice in him, that there's no murder in him. Lay not this sin to their charge. So he prays for those who murdered him to make sure his spirit's right. They mistreated me, Pastor. Pray for them. Not just for their sake, for your sake. So that your spirit will stay right with the Lord. You understand that? You say, well, I can't pray for them, Pastor. They, they treated me so hard, so harshly, and it was so bad. I can't pray for them. Pray for the mother. Pray for their father. Pray for the... Ch- Come on, somebody. Or pray for the children. You can't pray for him. Pray for the wife. You can't pray for the wife. Pray for the husband. You can't pray for either one of them. Pray for the children. You know what's going to happen after you pray for the children? Then you'll be able to pray for the husband. Then you'll be able to pray for the one that did you wrong. Because you've got to keep your spirit right. And I've got to keep my spirit right. I can't let that murder get inside of me. I can't let what... See, we're saying, I can't let what they did to me get in me. Can't do it. Got to keep a right spirit. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to do what Jesus told me to do. Pray for those who mistreat you. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for him. You think he felt like it? No, he did it because Jesus told him to do it. And he did it because he knew he needed to for his own sake. And also would affect the outcome. When he prayed that prayer, he prayed for Saul of Tarsus. He prayed for him. Because he prayed for him that day, the ears of Saul would be open to the gospel. So, first two few verses of eight, Saul was consenting unto his death. The Bible says he fell asleep. 
If you're a Christian, when you die, what you do is you go to sleep. You don't really die, you just go to sleep. <clears throat> and I, I understand now, this is a good way to determine where Ananias and Sapphira went. Because the Bible says when they dropped, they died. So this is a good way to determine where Ananias and Sapphira went because they didn't go to sleep. They died. That could be a real strong indication of where they went. When Stephen died, you got three graves now. You got Ananias, Sapphira, and Stephen. The difference between the first two and this one is he fell asleep. They died. And so the Bible says, Stephen, uh, Saul, consenting unto his death, hearing Stephen shout with a loud voice. He sees Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Shouting out loud. And look at the way he died. It would never leave Saul the rest of his life. The way the man died. He didn't die like a crybaby. Oh, don't hurt me. When those early Christians, when they died, many people came into the church because when they saw the way they died, they died praising God. They died singing. They died praying for forgiveness for their persecutors. The way they died impacted their world. They never saw anybody die like these people. Most people, they're going to die. They're screaming and they're crying like a crybaby. Oh, don't hurt me. Don't. No. Nobody dies or goes to sleep like a believer and packs the world. And Saul was consenting unto his death. He gave his vote. At that time, there was certain, it was great, say great persecution, mega persecution, mega persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad. Now, go out and do what Stephen preached. Go out and take this Jesus to the whole world. Let them know He's the God over heaven and earth. Let them know He's the Savior of the whole universe. Go out. And when you go out, you don't have to worry about leaving him in the land of Israel. You don't have to worry about the temple. You don't have to worry about a sacrifice. Go out and preach to the Gentiles this message. That was the purpose that God had for the church in the beginning. That after they received the power or the whole, the gift of the Holy Ghost, He says, you shall be witnesses or martyrs unto me. Stephen was a witness before he, he was a martyr before he died. Stephen was a martyr before he died because Stephen was a witness before he died. He sealed his witness with his death. Therefore, he was a martyr. And so in Acts 1 and 8, this is what Jesus told him to do. He said, go ye therefore. Right? He told him in Matthew 28 and in Luke 24 and Acts 1 and 8, <clears throat> but you shall receive power, verse 8, after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me, martyrs. unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That was the plan of God. That they would take it from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. This section beginning with the 6th chapter of Acts through the ninth chapter of Acts is the new section 
where we have a breaking away from the temple in Judaism and a moving of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It's a new section. So the Bible says at that time God's going to use this persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem and they were all scattered abroad. They become the dispersed. The diaspora. Now it's the church that the diaspora. They were scattered abroad throughout the region of who? Judea and Samaria. Just like Jesus said, from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Except the apostles. Why not the apostles? Why not Peter? Why not John? Why not the apostles? Why are they still left in Jerusalem? Why? Because these Hellenistic Jews had a revelation of God that was more offensive to Jerusalem Jews than even Peter and John were at the time. They had a revelation the Judaic system was over. And I'm not saying Peter and John didn't have a revelation. They didn't have the revelation at the extent that Stephen did. The Greek-speaking Jews. So they were staying in. And I'm not, that's not a, I'm not casting a negative on the apostle. I'm just telling you that's where it is right now. So now they're scattered abroad throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And here we go, verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Devout men, brothers and sisters, first martyr, not an apostle, a deacon. Devout men picks up his body and bury him. Remember in their mind, the Sanhedrin's mind, he's a blasphemer. He's a false prophet. They've stoned him according to Deuteronomy 13, Leviticus 24. In their mind. But he's not. And when these devout men pick up his body to bury him, they make great lamentation, great persecution, great lamentation. What are they doing when they lift up their voice, Brother Thomas? With great lamentation as they carry this man of God to his burial site. They are literally lifting their voice in protest to what? The Sanhedrin court and the people of that synagogue had done to this man. It's a voice of protest. You shouldn't have done this. You were wrong when you killed this man. And they lament over his death. Unlike Ananias and Sapphira. What are you going to do, Saul? As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and hauling men and women, committed them to prison. He goes into the house. He goes in from house to house and he's looking for people. He's seen the apostles walk into their houses. He goes and drags men and women out of those houses. He's like a wild boar. He's like a wild animal. He's, he's bringing havoc on the church. That literally means he's like a wild animal. 
so he's not yet converted. But he'll never forget what he saw that day. Father, I come before you today and I ask you, God, to take this word and put it in the hearts and lives of every believer in this church. I do not know, Father, if at some point in the future, if we will have to give an account as Stephen did. I do not know, Father, if we will also be persecuted. You said that they would be delivered before councils and they would be persecuted and put to death for your name's sake. Father, I do not know what the future holds for this body, for myself, these believers. But I pray, Father, that if we have experienced, have to experience persecution or death for you, we understand that, Lord, we're just going to sleep, which is a promise of the resurrection from the dead. 